thinking where is everything sort of heading in this crazy world that we live in political polarization big tech manipulating our mind and our behavior ai improving potentially replacing our jobs and international unrest and hostility that doesn't seem to be easily resolvable but just sort of perpetuating in ferocity and vastness. Uh, personally, perhaps you felt it, your body doesn't look or feel as you would like it to. Your work isn't as invigorating or satisfying as you thought it would be. Perhaps your dwelling where you live isn't as large, isn't as modern, or isn't located in the spot that you truly desire. Uh, perhaps there's relationships that aren't as harmonious or fulfilling as you'd hoped. Where is life heading when we are caught in the grip of unrealised expectations? The world that we live in, the body that we inhabit, and even relationally with God, spiritually. Seasons where we don't feel as connected to God, where there are questions and doubts that really just cloud our mind where our understanding of God's promises haven't really been realised and so spiritually we are overwhelmed with disappointment and we have insecurities about whether God is really for us. In the midst of life, in its sort of complex web, the future, where everything is headed, is so important to help us navigate our way forward. Life in this world is complex for us all, and so no wonder by the time we get to December, we feel like our bodies have very little energy left to give. Well, at church here at Joshua Tree, we're all about trying to follow Jesus, and so we understand that hope, you know, the end goal is really important. But life following Jesus isn't like taking your dog for a walk, our dog Jack sort of knows the cues that when the kids are being taken to school, that's a time when I get to go for a walk. Uh, when Ruben gets dressed in his baseball gear on a Saturday morning, that's a time when I get to go down to the park as the team mascot. Uh, there's these cues that are familiar to him, and then there's a path that he normally treads. But life isn't sort of that familiar, isn't it? It's not that predictable for us. It's, it's a bit more like sort of being given clues for a scavenger hunt and thinking, where am I going to start? Where to next? And will I ever complete this? Where is everything headed? It's a really important question to answer as we just wrestle with the tensions. How's the action go? The tensions that life brings our way. And so as we conclude our series in Zechariah, we're going to hear this great apocalyptic oracle about where everything is headed. Chapters 12 and 14, full of rich images and significant allusions, it's a word to Zechariah about what's ahead. And whilst it's sort of easy to just get swamped in the magnitude of the images and the language, really what is given to Zechariah is a picture of a new beginning a future beginning that God is establishing, and that is what everything is headed towards. 
But like sort of a new employee, when they're sort of briefed about how to go about a certain task in the organisation, there's sort of this glazed look over your eye, you know, to just sort of be given instructions about something you haven't experienced, it, it's not as easy to comprehend as once you've walked down the path and you look back and say, oh, okay, <laughs> I get how this is going to play out. And so as Zechariah has given this oracle to his generation, it's like the new employee standing there, glazed eyes, because everything that's mentioned here is in the future. But for us, we're sort of been giving the briefing further down the track. Some of the things that are prophesied here in chapters 12 and 14 have come to be realised. And so it's a little bit easier for us to, to navigate the metaphors and the richness of the language because we see that God has actually been realising it. So this was written two and a half thousand years ago. And one of the key phrases that stretches across chapters 12 and 14 is this idea whoops, sorry, yeah, of that day. Over 15 times it's mentioned in these chapters, on that day. And the key question is, well, when was that day? Well, that day is not a literal 24-hour period, but it's a, a season in history, the day of the Lord. And it stretches from the time when Jesus arrived on earth, died, rose and ascended, to include the time which is yet to come when Jesus returns and brings about final judgment and the introduction of the new heavens and a new earth. And so whenever you see the phrase, on that day, in our passage today, it can refer to three sort of time zones. Then, the actual time when Jesus was on the earth. Now, this sort of 2,000 years in between. Or then, when Jesus returns to bring about his reign. Now, unfortunately, it's not a neat progression through chapters 12 and 14 where it starts with the then part of the day and then the now part of the day and then finishes with the not yet part of the day. In fact, it's all over the shop and some of the allusions don't just speak about one part of that day but many aspects of it. And so what we're going to see is that this oracle in chapters 12 and 14 gives us a clear picture of where everything is headed. And so for the original audience, for them it was all not yet. But we who live in the now, we look back at then, the time when Jesus came and fulfilled much of what is prophesied to have occurred on that day. But we also live in the now where we're waiting for the things that have not yet been realised. And so that is really helpful because looking to where things are headed really helps us to navigate the tension now, doesn't it? It's important to shape our right expectations. It's informative of the kind of experiences that we might expect. And it can help us understand what's actually occurring out there, in here, and relationally with God. Now, the future of where everything's headed that this passage really gives us a picture of is this reality of Jesus being king over all the earth. And we see in the first eight verses that God is the one who protects his people. 
This kingly rule shows that God can protect his people. And so if you have a look there at chapters 12, verses 1 to 8, you you get this rich battle image. There's an attack on Jerusalem by the nations. And so maybe the question is, well, when on that day is this occurring? Well, there are some allusions here to the, the familiar exile that this generation had experienced the consequences of. Uh, Perhaps it's an allusion to the destruction and opposition against God and his people that would happen in various expressions over the coming two and a half thousand years. But rather than sort of knowing, well, when did this attack on Jerusalem by the nations actually occur? What seems to be clear is that there'll be opposition towards God's people, that threats from surrounding nations and influences will be real, Conflict and bloodshed are to be expected in the now. Battles against God and his people will certainly occur. But though the attacks will come, what is also clear is that God will prevail. We see there in verse 4, his eye is watchful. He's willing to strike down those who oppose him and his people. In fact, he's able to consume his opponents and he will shield and strengthen his people. His city, which is sort of symbolic of his people, will remain intact. And then verse 5, the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. What we see here for that day, in our day, is that we can expect Opposition for our faith. Opposition against God and his people. There is a battle going on. Now, the the outcome of the battle is secured through Jesus, but sort of like a a football team that is playing in a league and has earned enough points over the season, they they know they're going to be crowned as the winning team. They still need to play every other game in the season. And in all of those games, their opponents are going to want to beat them. There's risk of injury. And they need to beware of anything that might disqualify them from being able to receive the prize. And and so despite attacks against God and his people, Jesus, who's king over all the earth, That that image in verse 1 of the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who's laid the foundation of the earth, who's formed the spirit of human beings, he will use his people as a cup to repel against the opposition that comes their way. And so from verse 9 on, we see this picture of victory occurring for God and his people after a season of weeping. God will destroy those who attack him and God will pour out grace and supplications or pleas for grace, for mercy that we see there in verse 10. What we see here in this great image in verse 10 is is that a spirit of grace is given by God. It enables people to have a right posture, to, to ask God for good things that they don't deserve. And so God pouring out his spirit does so that his people will seek his favour. 
And so as God is victorious against those who oppose him, the result in his people isn't like this arrogant pride. Geez, we're good. No, no, no. Look, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, verse 10, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. The, the posture of God's people isn't triumphalism, but deep humility. And now there's some interesting allusions to King Josiah here in verse 11, uh, who, you know, was this great king who led God's people back to right worship, who was then killed in battle and there was immense mourning over his death. And so this grief that's described here is in the image of a parent grieving the death of their young child. It's sort of like just gut-wrenching tears. And this is the posture of God's people whom he saved. A deep humility. Humility that comes from recognising that it's actually not just the world (laughs) that's opposed to God, but indeed... It's them too. God's people are culpable for his death. And so as we look back then at Jesus' life, we see how this plays out, where his people, his followers abandoned him, his disciples turned against him. But we see it for ourselves too, that there's something in our hearts that is opposed to God. And so the victory that flows from weeping is sort of the pathway towards a restored relationship that God is establishing. A humility that says that there is a need for God's grace in our life. And God gives us this spirit that yearns to seek God's favour. And so the pathway towards a relationship with the king is humility through an acknowledgement that there's something in us that actually rejects our maker. That the problem with the world isn't those people out there, but it's actually what's going on in here for each of us. You know, pride that just sort of resents God's order over our life, or arrogance that rejects God's wisdom, The battle against God is something that we all participate in at some level. But despite being God's opponents, how does he react to us? Well, he graciously pours out his spirit so that we can start to see things clearly. See and declare that the one who was sent indeed is the one who we ourselves have pierced. Jesus, who came as king over all the earth, was victorious, but it comes after a season of weeping and mourning. And and so this mourning births repentance, where we acknowledge that our opposition towards God is not right. And God meets that repentance with cleansing. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 1, that great image of being cleansed like a, from a fountain from all impurity and sin. 
It's like this image of having been in the garden all afternoon and you're sort of just covered in dirt that sort of formed into mud. And then just the the satisfaction of high pressure water and some soap that just brings cleansing, some moisturising to give um, energy and life to skin that is dried out. Such is this flow, chapter 13, verse 1, of how God responds when we've come to him weeping on our opposition, acknowledging that we were the ones who pierced him. Such is the transformation that he is wanting to bring. And so with Jesus reigning over all the earth and him responding to our call for grace with cleansing, we see that his restorative work isn't just left to individuals, but in chapter 13, verse 2 to 6, we see that the whole land is going to be purified. And in verses 2 to 6 there, we see God cleansing idols and false prophets. We read that names will be banished, that false prophets will be removed, lies will be exposed, emptiness of promises will be revealed, and the powerlessness of false hope, it's going to become evident. You see, what are some ideologies, some messages that our world sort of lives by today? Well, you do you. Everyone's opinions and feelings are equally valid. Our world that says it doesn't matter what you believe in, as long as your beliefs don't hurt other people or that you think you have a right to impose it on them. All of these mantras that just sort of shape our modern Western world, they'll be laughable when there's an obvious reality that there is a true king who reigns over all the earth. And so on that day, Jesus will purge all false gods. He'll purify this world and establish a new creation. And a key part for that cleansing and purification is a time of judgment, which we see in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 13. A judgment that will both refine some and consume others. But surprisingly, it's a judgment that is firstly inflicted on the king himself. Now remember last week, chapter 11, this picture of the good shepherd as opposed to to the, the wayward and woeful shepherd. But now there's this picture that the true king will be struck. And now for us, two and a half thousand years later, who know Jesus, who know that Jesus' death is the means by which we live, this language is just overly familiar. But let's just try and get our head in the fact that For God's chosen king to be struck down, for a God of the universe to be willing to endure suffering, although it might be something overly familiar with us, conceptually it is shocking. And so for Zechariah's generation in that day to have a sense that the king would be inflicted is truly radical. But Jesus' death is so central to God's plan. It's his death that upholds the need for and the impending nature of judgment. 
And we see there, in verses 7 to 9, that it's even for the little ones, those who are most vulnerable. And the result of the judgment is this reference to the one-third and the two-third. The majority, the two-third, in the face of judgment, perish. Two-thirds will resist the pouring out of God's Spirit that has the potential to produce personal mourning over sin that can lead people to repentance in action and that can result in them being cleansed and purified, two-thirds will reject that offer. But one-third will experience the refining. And now I think this one-third and two-thirds aren't specific as is general in apocalyptic sort of language. It's just sort of evoking, I think, the idea of minority versus majority. And so the one-third that's left in this land on that day, which is our now, will be refined. So as we struggle in this messed up world with uh, personal lives that are complicated and, and disappointing and difficult with a faith that often might seem fragile and disconnected, we need to see that the time now is the time in which God refines his people. God is purifying those who have been cleansed. They're being perfected by the king over all the earth. And so our day is a time for personal refining testing and an opportunity for us to call out to the Lord. And the answer that will come when we call out is what's seen there in verse 9. As we call out to our great God, God responds, they are my people. And then we can respond now, in this day, the Lord is our God. Judgment will come on that day. There is a period of refining now. And so then chapter 14 brings about this, this, this constant tension that, that fills all these three chapters of the positive and the negative. It looks forward, look forward mainly, I think, to the not yet part of that day. In verse 1, when judgment will come, firstly, on God's people. We see also in the New Testament that the family of God will be judged first. But what's interesting here is that they're judged at the hands of the nations. Now, this isn't a punishment against God's people like the exile had been when God allowed the nations to overthrow them and inflict them, actually that judgment that will be delivered by the nations will actually indict the nations themselves. It'll bring about their own judgment. We read that God gives people over to the desires of their heart and so this resistance and rebellion against God that has been building and building is going to flow eventually towards God's people. And the two-thirds disregard for God will be evident on that day. And until that final judgment is complete, 
a day which verses 6 and 7 describes as being a new, unique day, a, a day of new creation, a literally when recreation is occurring for a new heaven and a new earth, A day when the order that's embedded in our current creation of day and night will be superseded. A new rhythm. See there, a life filled in light. And verses 8 to 12 gives us a picture of the restoration that's going to be established on that day. Where water and prosperity flow where there's no longer disputes about who's in charge of this world, but rather there will be a unanimous declaration that there is one Lord, that there is only one name. And God's people will inhabit the land that God's given and they'll be secure. This is the not yet. This is where everything's headed towards. It's a complete reversal of life at the moment. That the nations will fall apart and God's people will come together and they're going to be held together. And so chapter 14 gives this contrast of those who are being punished and are lamenting that and others who are celebrating and rejoicing. Friends, that final day that is not yet, when it will be obvious to all of humanity that Jesus is king over all the earth, that's where life's heading. And have a look at verse 20 in chapter 14 about the the, the picture of that day. It says, On that day to the Lord will be described on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. This is how complete the transformation will be on that day because if you can remember back to chapter 3 in this crazy vision that Zechariah had about Joshua the high priest who was unclean and needed to be cleansed and when he was cleansed, Zechariah sort of jumped into the vision and said, put a crown on his head. And the crown for the high priest was inscribed with the statement, holy to the Lord. The high priest was the one who was able to be in God's presence. But have a look at verse 20 now. On that day, the bells around the horses, they're going to be inscribed, holy to the Lord. The kitchen pots are going to be inscribed, holy to the Lord. So complete is the transformation on that day that is yet to come. All of the recreation is holy and pleasing to the Lord. That's where everything's headed. Everyone and everything being holy to the Lord. Friends, Jesus is king over all the earth right now. Because of what he did then on the cross and rising from death, his reign is clear. But on the part of the day that is not yet to be realised, it will be universally acknowledged. It will be unambiguous. It will be complete. And so it's that part of the day then when just as Zechariah promised a humble donkey riding king who was sold out for 30 pieces of silver as Zechariah predicted 
who gave his life and was pierced for and by us, as Zechariah predicted, who was given of himself, whose blood was shed so that we could be washed clean, as Zechariah predicted. It's everything that happened on that part of this day that gives us great confidence that the outcome is secure. And rather than building an arrogant triumphalism that we're, on, we're supporting the right team, our understanding of the significance that happened then on that day will be shown with deep humility. Grieving and mourning, knowing that we are the ones who pierced him, that there's something in us that is opposed to God, yet God graciously pours out his spirit so that we can seek his grace and favour. And so our expectations for the now part of this day is that opposition will be real. If you're following Jesus, expect hostility, expect mocking, expect rejection, Satan, evil, the desires of the flesh, the ways of this world, they're all active and present. It's affecting global activity, political realms, economic, technological. It impacts our health, our work environments, our dwelling, our relationships. The opposition attacks our devotional life, our feelings towards God, our functioning as a church community. The the battle is against all aspects of life. That is the right expectation for this part of that day. But we're not alone in the face of this opposition. God is doing a refining work amongst his people. And so Peter picks it up in his letter. He says, in this, he's talking about your future inheritance, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, now is the time where God's people are refined. The refining comes through testing and there's an opportunity for us to call out to God in the midst of the tension. And we have great confidence that as we call out to him, he responds, that is my person. And we can respond, even, no matter how hard it is, the Lord is my God. And so our world that's full of idols, that's just wanting to perpetuate people to find their identity in power or control or security or comfort, it's going to bring about opposition towards faith. It's going to affect every aspect of society. So as we look out, we sort of expect that 
political systems will try and establish themselves to work out what's most advantageous for people in power. It'll perpetuate the desire for people to pursue power. These false hopes that are offered to individuals and societies that are sort of counter to where everything's headed, that Jesus is Lord over all. We've got to expect that our world is full of idol worship and false prophets. Sometimes they'll be in a religious form, but they could be political, they could be economic, they could be technological, or they could just be social. So it's right for us now on that day to think critically about what's happening around us. To challenge what our world just says is normal, what our society just assumes as given. And as we think critically, we should expect to see cracks and holes in what's being offered. But it'll be on the not yet part of that day when the idols will be fully revealed, completely exposed and removed. And so as we look forward, it's so important to keep our eyes fixed on where everything's headed. That transformation, that new creation where everything and everyone will be wholly to the Lord. And so what does that look like? Well, it's, it's sort of like when you, you know you're going out for dinner and you've just got to just smash out a day of housework. Sorry, housework's my least favourite thing. And you're just like, oh, just clean, clean, clean. And there's, there's something to look forward to. Or you've got a really refreshing, whatever that looks like for you, weekend planned and a really horrendous week at work. And just what you're looking forward to is just getting you through. That's something of how we navigate this day. Because the best bit, the fully transformed recreation is yet to come. And so as we face opposition, as we just expect there's going to be tumultuous times, the book of Zechariah hasn't been a waste of time for seven weeks. It hasn't. It's given us a picture of what we can have confidence in, this true hope, because what God has promised, we've seen how much of it has been realised, and so for the bits that are not yet realised, we look forward with great hope to that day when Jesus, being king over all the earth, will be evident to everyone. And God looks and says, they are my people. And we can respond, you are my God. Let's pray. Loving Father, thank you for the hope that you offer to us in this broken world. Father, thank you that Jesus will return to establish his eternal reign new heaven and a new earth, a kingdom that will last for eternity. Lift our eyes to that future. Strengthen our faith as we navigate today. We pray this for your sake.